giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the giant robot smashing into other giant robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen, and with us today is Harold Hughes, CEO and founder of Bandwagon. Harold, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Good morning. So uh, to start off, can you tell us what Bandwagon is? Absolutely. So Bandwagon, in the most techie way of explaining it, is a B2B SaaS company that helps sports teams, festivals, and pretty much any event organizer know which fans are in the venue on the day of the event, regardless of how they got there. Uh, The most simple form of explaining it is we want to help fans have the best experience no matter where they go or wherever they buy their tickets. And so we're using blockchain to help the event organizers curate and personalize those experiences for them. Nice. And what inspired the idea? Was this something personal for you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm a first generation American born to Jamaican parents. And so growing up, you get the uh, traditional immigrant story of, hey, if you just come here and you work really hard, we'll be able to uh, advance as far as possible. And so my parents raised us the best they could. But a lot of times we didn't have the same resources that our classmates had or some of our even neighbors had. And so we were on every type of government aid, food stamps, WIC, everything. But when it came to sports, we were always felt like we were equals with our our playing mates. Um, Thankfully, we were able-bodied. And so I really loved how sports connected people, regardless of socioeconomic status, uh, race, all those things as a kid. And as I got older, I realized that the same was true of fanhood. When you're in the stands on the day of the event and your star quarterback scores a game-winning touchdown, you're hugging and high-fiving that person next to you, whether they're you know different religion, different socioeconomic status, high school dropout, and you're a PhD. None of that stuff matters. And so we really wanted to find a way to help fans continue to come back to the venue and really connect with people they may not normally get to mix it up with. But we realized that the biggest pain point in doing that was how bad the game day experience is really starting to get in this generalized experience that's being delivered, as well as the problem with ticket fraud, where fans are spending billions of dollars and not being able to get into the venues. So we wanted to tackle both of those issues head on to really try and create a better sense of community for fans everywhere and really connect more people. So how does Bandwagon solve that as far as creating that community at the event? One of the things we think about with ticketing is if you were going to go to, let's say I'm a New York Knicks fan. So if I was going to go to a Knicks game, normally I would just type in Knicks in my Google browser and it would show probably StubHub as the number one place. The challenge with that is, is that there's going to be dozens of ticket companies that are selling tickets to the Knicks game. And unfortunately, due to how ticket companies have their relationships set up with sports teams and festivals and these other event organizers, there's normally an exclusive agreement, meaning only one ticket company is providing the New York Knicks data. So if I buy my ticket from, you know, Joe's tickets or Joe knows tickets and someone else buys their tickets from Vivid Seats, the Knicks aren't necessarily going to know that we're sitting there, which means that we're probably going to get the same generalized marketing. We're probably going to get the same generalized uh, products and services. And so what Bandwagon actually does using blockchain is allows multiple ticket parties whether you're a ticket marketplace or broker, whoever it is, to not only know that the tickets that you're selling are real and authentic or originally created by the Knicks, but it 
also helps the Knicks know no matter where these tickets are coming from, who's in the venue. So from a visual standpoint, you can imagine it being something similar to multiple puzzle pieces being contributed by various different ticket companies. And now the New York Knicks get to see a full picture of who all's in the venue versus everyone, you know, hoarding their puzzle piece to themselves where it doesn't add much value. So who's the actual user on the um, the team side and what are they seeing in the software? It sounds like there's maybe a visualization component. Yeah. So we work to have this as a tool for the marketing person. Uh, so one of the things we want we want to make sure is, is that you're making sure that the message that you're trying to send is getting to the right audience. If you've ever sold a ticket online to someone, you may have still received the, you know, thanks for coming to the game email, even though you didn't actually go, which means someone else. Right. Yeah, which means someone else did didn't get that email. But then the other part of it is the ticketing person. Uh, If you're the director of ticketing or the person who's over sales, you want to have a warm base of people to reach out to. And the warmest customer that's more likely to come back to your venue is a person who's been there before. So if a person or a family or whoever has been to your venue and they've been buying on the secondary market and you have no idea they're sitting there, we want to help you have better visibility into who's showing up, why they're showing up, and how do you get them to come back to your game. So it's a dashboard that has visualization analytics uh, where we have the ticketing manager, we may have the marketing manager, and in some cases, we're adding in the food and beverage so they can make some decisions as well. Now I'm going to like marketing geek out on this because that's sure. my area <laughs> and, and certainly appealing to me, right? Because we're moving more and more as just like marketing in general into you know, the more personalization, the right, better. Right. And the days of, you know, spray and pray, as they called it, yep. you know, uh, is over. So really understanding who you're talking to and, you know, everything about them that you can really gain. So would this maybe feed into a marketing automation platform or emailing? Is this like sitting within other tools in a marketing stack potentially? Yes, absolutely. So we built it to make it completely seamless on the onboarding. One of the things would be to be SaaS, uh, business to business, software as a service, uh, to not be the acronym guy. The, <laughs> the reason that we built it the way we did is to make onboarding super seamless. And so we start with your existing CRM and your existing ticketing data. And then from there, we want to build an add-on to it and everything's additive. So it's a network effect that compounds. And so from a marketing standpoint, we're working with one organization where they have a social media team and a social media strategy. And so we're able to import a lot of that social media engagement um, through some of the things we've developed with the Facebook Pixel, as well as working alongside what they're doing on other social channels to help them have an understanding not only of brand affinity that you know their fans are choosing, but also the getting the demographics and and information that will help them have a a better idea of who's showing up. That's what we're doing today. But we think the future of this is really going to be focusing on giving the fans the power to say, hey, I'm here, raising my hand and and focusing on that that self-sovereign identity component when it comes to identity and blockchain and data management, where you want to say, I want to empower fans and people to allow them to use their data however they'd like to, uh, have it be revocable from certain parties and be able to truly manage what that experience looks like. Because at the end of the day, I do believe that people will give you their info if you ask in the right way and tell them the way it's going to be used. I think the biggest problem we're seeing with some of these data breaches and some of these untrustworthy activities is that people aren't being clear and upfront about why they're taking your data and no one feels like they're having a better experience for it. So that's what we're trying to change with transparency. That's cool to hear that you're being very mindful of that as you build the product. 
And now that you say it, it makes so much sense to, <laughs> to do this and enable teams because we're, you know, far beyond the, the age of, of social media. And, you know, you have all these influencers and mini influencers out in the audience and that really seems like it's not being tapped into. Yeah, so we're excited about it. And it's really, we think it's just the beginning and the market's starting to catch up. You know, if you think about it, everyone has really believed in like silo and exclusivity. And we think collaboration is the key to everything. And so if we can positively correlate everyone's incentives and make sure that, you know, we're playing in the right way and protecting everyone's information, there's going to be huge value for us that we're going to create in the market. And we just want to extract some of it. And so you're building a B2B SaaS platform um, for the ticketing industry. Sounds difficult enough to begin with. Mm -hmm. And you now introduce blockchain into all of that. I'm so curious. (laughs) Why are you doing this to yourself? Yeah, I think it's one of these things. When we first started it in 2017, so we started Bandwagon in 2014. Quick backstory. We wanted to create the best ticketing platform to protect home field advantage. I'm a big Clemson fan. I'm a Clemson alum. And I love college Mm -hmm. football ball Saturdays. But if I resold my ticket on a StubHub or Vivid Seats or wherever it was, there's a good chance that the away team fan was going to get my seat. And you'd see the stadium turn from orange to maybe red or to some other color. So, Oh, that's really funny. Right. I never thought of that. Right. So it's crazy. I mean, you might remember there was like a Notre Dame game like a couple years ago where they were at Notre Dame. There were more Georgia fans in the Notre Dame venue. And it was chaos. It was like they they completely (laughs) took over. And so for us, we started it and said, oh, we want to be a ticket company. We want to help fans protect home flu advantage. And we literally made a ticket marketplace that had a button that toggled and said, hey, I want to sell this ticket to a fan of my team. And then we went through some data analysis on the back end. But then as we were building it and trying to scale, we realized we were running into two problems. Number one, we weren't able to tell if the tickets were authentic or not because we had no relationship with the team. And then two... Our fans who were buying on our platform weren't getting the marketing. They weren't getting the messaging on game day. So we felt like they were getting a cheapened experience and we didn't want to do that. So when we went and started talking to teams and ticket companies, the number one thing we realized was that the market was so siloed because everyone wanted to protect their own data. And so we started trying to figure out a way to allow the data to live in the same place, but have governance and control over who's able to see certain data and who's able to take certain action on it. And that's when blockchain came in. We have a Clemson PhD, a former Googler who's built everything that we've been working on from a blockchain component in-house since 2017. And now we're getting to the point where we actually just partnered with IBM and their uh, IBM blockchain platform so that we can take this thing to the next level. So for us, blockchain is actually being used as it should be as a database level um, solution where the average fan will never know that this is happening in the background. You know, for you and I, we'll go on these websites, mm-hmm. we'll buy tickets, and we'll show up at the concert or the game, and it's going to have great impact there. But everything about that is not going to change. We're working on the background to, to make this a seamless experience. And so does that help prevent against scalping as well? Yeah. So what ends up happening is, is that you can imagine uh, when you take a package and you're going to ship it from your local post office, if you don't put a tracking number on that package, there's no chance that you'll know where it is after it's left the post office, right? And so being able to digitally keep up with things is really the key to this digital ticketing solution that we've been building. Uh, That's step one. Step two is really being able to confirm that the ticket that 
you see is real and it's the only one like it. And so the, we, we do three things. Number one, we make sure to know, hey, was this ticket originally created by the event organizer? And so that's where the ticket company is able to check the blockchain and say, yep, it was originally created by this event organizer on this day. It's got this thumbprint. It's got these digital signatures. Great. Okay. Number two, is the person who's listing this ticket the actual owner of the ticket? And that's where you get to uh, get an approved of ownership. And so you're able to check the blockchain in that way. And then last, are there any restrictions on the ability to transfer or resell or move the ticket? And that's where we can get to asset level restrictions and asset level rules on how tickets and things are transferred. So that's really what we've been doing with blockchain. And that's really what we're excited about how that technology works in our application. And can you see this being applied also to music venue and concert ticketing? I myself don't go to a ton of sports events, but I do see a ton of shows and concerts. And I see a lot of similar issues on that side with ticketing and reselling and, you know, markups and false tickets. And it just seems like the whole system is completely broken. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're focused on. So Bandwagon's not a sports tech focused company. We're a live events platform. We want to focus on any ticketed live event. Our second customer was actually a film festival in Johannesburg, South Africa. We were working with Kwaku Mandela, Nelson Mandela's grandson to help them put on the Africa Rising International Film Festival. So we definitely completely see the opportunity well beyond sports. Uh, our advisor and one of our investors, Melly Price, she was the founder of Frontgate Tickets. She came on because she saw the opportunity for us to help in that market in the same way. So any ticketed live event, whether it's a festival, a concert, a, a convention, a sporting event, we're, we're definitely prepared to do it. Amazing. And are the ticket vendors themselves, like the ticket masters of, of the world, are those partners of yours? Like, do you have to be working with those vendors? Are they excited about it? Are they (laughs) nervous about something like this? Like, what's the dynamic there? Right now, they're still learning how it's going to all work together. I mean, if you think about what they've actually been selling, if you're a ticket company, if attendance continues to decline for live events, you're losing money, right? And so if we're deciding that we're not going to go to events because the experience sucks, then it's in the ticket company's best interest to help the event organizer put on a better experience. And so that's the message we're trying to help them understand. And so for us, when we first started, the biggest question was, well, how are you going to get Ticketmaster and StubHub on? This is a network effect uh, solution. For every ticket company that we add, it gets better and better and better. And so we go from taking a team from 4% of their identity of the fan in the venue to 6%, they're ecstatic. So really, as we build that way, um, we think we'll get the, the right folks on early and then we'll get to the stub hubs and the ticket masters of the world when they when they uh, want to join us. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Pricing Wire. Think about all the time, effort, uncertainty and everything else that you're investing into what you're building. Pricing Wire has helped more than a thousand software and technology innovators like you take a proactive approach to both discover and get paid what they're truly worth. From early startups to Fortune 500 enterprises, across verticals and around the globe, Pricing Wire delivers easy to understand and actionable recommendations to guide your monetization and pricing strategy. If you want to avoid unnecessary challenges or regrets and prevent missing time-sensitive revenue opportunities, Pricing Wire can help. Just go to pricingwire.com and book a strategy session today. 
Whether you need to assort your value into offerings, quantify and message your value, select the right pricing metrics, set and change prices, or even decide if usage-based pricing is best for you, Pricing Wire will help you achieve your revenue goals faster and with more confidence. Learn more at pricingwire.com and start making meaningful progress today. What year were you founded? So I started Bandwagon in 2014, right as I finished my MBA, worked on it in the evenings and on the weekends for about a year and a half, and finally went full-time in January of 2016, really began our fundraising journey, and we had actually completed the Founder Institute Idea Accelerator in the fall of 2015. And that was really the whole process of, is this idea that you have really worth you know, becoming a business that you do full-time? And so it was perfect timing because you know when I went full-time in January of 2016, I was able to apply everything that I'd learned from that and really hit the ground running as far as bootstrapping the company, really reaching out to early investors who are going to be supportive of us. And then now here we are, you know, almost three and a half years later, uh, still alive, which is the most important uh, (laughs) metric when it comes to early stage at this point. Yeah, for sure. Going back to that sort of 2014 to 2016, what was going on during those years? Was that like market research and kind of testing out where the pain points are? Yeah, definitely. So I was finishing my MBA. I was working full time in corporate America. And my background is in like barcoding, RFID, asset management software. And so that's really the mindset we're applying to uh, the ticketing industry. And so as I finished my MBA, which I had the hours I was working in the evening, I basically took those hours and dedicated it to researching bandwagon. And so I was learning the market, I was understanding the industry, understanding the players that were in the space. And so I really wanted to de-risk it as much as possible. Uh, We ended up doing like an Indiegogo campaign where we raised like $7,500, which allowed me to like pay some college students and me and and them walked around Clemson surveying thousands of fans, asking them, hey, where'd you get your ticket today? How'd you feel about that experience? Mm -hmm. And all these different things. And we just really wanted to make sure that we were taking a calculated risk if we were going to jump in with both feet. That's great to hear. When um, we have prospective clients come to ThoughtBot and they're interested in building their first iteration of the product, their minimum viable product, that's the first thing that we ask is, you know, have you already taken the time to just talk to the, the people who have the pain and really identified a real pain so that it's worthwhile yeah. that we move forward and, and start to build something to then further test? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I think about. I often speak to different university students or different groups, and it's funny how much uh, we've gotten into this culture of people wanting to get into NDAs and being secretive and stealth mode. It's so wild. And I was speaking at University of South Carolina Upstate. I'm on the uh, advisory board for the dean of the business school there. And we were talking to the students. And one of the things I said was, you've got to lead with collaboration. One of the first things that I did when I decided I was going to start Bandwagon was post on Facebook saying, hey, I'm going to be doing this startup. It's going to be focused on ticketing. If you have any thoughts, let me know. And that did two things. Number one, it made me publicly accountable to so many people. Like so many people felt like the need to check on me and to make sure I was doing what I said I was going to do, which is awesome. But the second thing, which is probably the most important part, was that I had really smart people who were in their spare time or whenever they stumbled upon an article, they were using essentially their excess mental capacity to think of me and send me articles. So I would just be minding my own business, going about my day. And one of my friends, 
friends who I hadn't talked to in months would say, hey, do you see this article that Ticketmaster is doing this thing? Or, hey, have you ever thought about this that Bandwagon could do better? And it was fantastic because that collaboration allowed us to iterate much faster. It allowed us to take more attempts at the different hypotheses we were working on. And so it was just fantastic in that way. So for us, it was really important to not only get in front of the fans and talk to users, but also understand the market players and the pain points. That is really interesting. You're kind of building up this little audience. Mm -hmm. You're being held accountable. Uh, and then a, a nice byproduct is you've got this free research team yes. that, that has started sending you documentation. I love that. Yeah. You mentioned being a, a first generation American. And I'd love to hear growing up, did you have an entrepreneurial spirit? You know, where did this come about that you ended up starting your own company? Yeah, it's so funny. You know, I think about the word entrepreneurship and I don't know if I ever knew it until, you know, much later in my like career, working career. I mean, back then when I was a kid, I've got four siblings, uh, my parents plus my grandparents lived with us. At times I had aunts and uncles and cousins living with us in a three bedroom house in Columbia, South Carolina. Carolina. And so it wasn't really about entrepreneurship. It was really about putting food on the table and about monetizing mm -hmm. your talents and monetizing your, your time. And so whether I was refereeing soccer games on the weekends as an early teen, or when I was in elementary school selling candy that we would buy in bulk and selling them individually to different students and making sure I had the candy that the school didn't have, because then that way they had different competition. It was all those different things. I was just trying to find ways to contribute and put food on the table from a young age. And it was really, you know, I don't think that we had the luxury of, you know, having an allowance or some of the things that kids grow up with in these days. And so entrepreneurship, I don't think was it. It was really about figuring out how do you become the asset that is creating as much value as you can so that you can extract as much value from your work and from your efforts and your labor and your talent. And so now as an entrepreneur, I have been able to understand more about the community and understanding more about the mindset of this and putting systems and organization around it. But in the beginning, I was just a kid trying to help mom out or help dad out because the power was off or the water was going to be off or something like that. And in 2016, when you did end up making the move into the, the Founders Institute, at that point, were you bringing other people on to help with the idea? Yeah, so it was the fall of 2015, and we were joining the Founder Institute primarily because we already had a product in the market, and we wanted to get better visibility. So the company is headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina, which isn't like your traditional tech hub, you know, Boston, Austin, San Francisco, New York. Mm -hmm. And so we really took our opportunity to do the Founder Institute because we thought not only would it give us some really good information and resources, but if we could be the top graduate of the cohort, we would get the most attention in the city and allow us to take that notoriety and go from coast to coast. And that's exactly what we did. And so when I started the company in May of 2014, I was a solo founder. I'm still a solo founder, but I knew early on that I needed to bring on team members to diversify our skill sets. And I really wanted to fill in the gaps that I have as a person, as a leader. And so, yes, definitely added friends early on. Um, it was one of these things where I always made it a point. I 
didn't want to go and try and ask one of my friends to join because I felt in some case they may do it out of obligation and not genuinely wanting to do it. And so all of our early team members were folks who may have been friends of mine at Clemson or in corporate America. And they came to me and said, hey, this is pretty interesting. I want to be a part of it. And so that's really how we started building out the team. And so our first member, um, our COO, Sam Holmes, she and I went to Clemson together and worked at uh, ScanSource together, which is where I was in corporate America for about nine and a half years. The next person was another Black woman, uh, LaVonda Taylor. She also went to Clemson and then went and got her uh, JD at American University. And so as we built out the team, it's the same thing, you know, people always say is that your early team members are family or maybe coworkers or people you went to school with. And so I was fortunate to have people who wanted to help us build this that are still part of the team today. Talking about being in South Carolina and not necessarily in a traditional tech hub and also maybe not even thinking about things through a lens of entrepreneurship, how did you start to think about building the business and also specifically getting more funding to be able to to grow the business? I know you said originally you did an Indiegogo to kind of get you on your feet. And then where does it go from there? In the beginning, it's really tough. We unfortunately couldn't raise a significant like friends and family round. And so we really had to start working on our networks. And with me being, you know, I was in my late 20s when we started the company, I didn't really have a bunch of friends who were loaded with, you know, cash sitting around and dumping to a random idea in an industry they didn't understand. And so I really had to work on layers and layers and layers of networking. And so I started with my immediate circle and then asked them if they knew anyone and then asked those people if they knew anyone and just kept expanding more and more outward. And as you mentioned, yeah, being based in Greenville, it was really tough in the beginning because I was just knocking on these different doors and Greenville is a different kind of town when it comes to the types of startups that we have there. It's, you know, there's healthcare and there's real estate and there's a lot of marketing. But if you talk about fan identity or blockchain, blockchain, (laughs) blockchain, you know, it's really even sports tech was just a really tough place. And so I had an angel investor list that I'd been keeping up with and literally of the spreadsheet. I still have it today. And I was keeping track of all of my meetings. And I think we got up to like 149 meetings. And that wasn't per person. It was per meeting, 149. And it was no after no after no after no. And I was just like, this is crazy. And the 149th one was just a really like bad meeting. I I won't even go into how ridiculous it was. But at that point, I was just like, I don't know why I'm keeping track of these meetings. I'm not going to stop until I get the money that we need. So I just stopped tracking. And fortunately, shortly after that, um, one of my mentors told me, hey, I can't invest in your company, but you should talk to this person. And he introduced me to our first investor, Greg Smith. And Greg was a Clemson grad as well. He had sold his company to Xerox in the early 2000s and was angel investing. And he took a phone call with me and we talked for 45 minutes. And he says, honestly, the only reason I'm on the phone with you right now is because Tim told me to take the call. And, you know, when Tim calls me, I listen. And so I'm glad to be sharing the time with you. Let's grab a, you know, a, a coffee and talk about this more. And so we went to a Starbucks, I think two weeks later, it was uh, May of 2016. And we're going through the conversation like you normally would with a traditional angel investor. Tell me about the market. Tell me about the idea. Why will you win? Mm -hmm. And then he asked me the one question I'd never been asked before in any of these meetings. And he asks, so let's say that everything goes exactly as you say it does. Let's say everything goes right. Then what? Like, what will you do? 
And for me, it was a really easy and quick answer. Uh, my, my goal would be to take everything that I'd learned, all my time, energy, resources, I would be pouring into people to help try and make changes in generational wealth and really put impacts on the wealth gap and the gender gap and really focus on helping these people. Because in a lot of cases, just a little help is needed and someone has to be intentional about it. And I was like, that's what I would want to do. And he says, okay, I want to invest $100,000. And it was fantastic. And he told me, you know, that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to focus on investing in the next generation and really making the world better. And so that was the beginning of the round for us. Shortly after that, we had investors like Black Angel Tech Fund, Arlen Hamilton, uh, all come in. We had actually concluded our round with uh, Google for Black Founders in Durham, North Carolina. And so we raised our first round. It was like $310,000. And we were excited to hit the ground running with that team of folks who really believed in us. It's so nice to hear that you finally found someone who connected with you on the vision. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I don't know if I could have made it through 149 meetings. I don't know if I could have made it through 40 meetings. That it, right. it takes a certain level of, of dedication and, and belief in the vision. So the, the timeline, the part of the story I skipped out of that is that I had left ScanSource and went to this job that had headhunted me. And I was there for six months and they fired me, fired me out of the blue. And so I got canned by this job and I was like, man, I you know, was expecting to work here for a while. I was working on bandwagon in the evenings. So I was without a job. My wife and I had just bought a house in October of 2015. And we found out we were expecting our first child in December of 2015. Oh, wow. Yeah. So July of 2015, I start the new job. October 2015, I buy a new house. I start Founder Institute in September of 2015 and finish that winter. We find out we're pregnant in December and on January 15, 2016, I get fired. And so everything is up in the air. And I tell my wife that I want to go full time on bandwagon and that we've got this much in savings and that much in severance. And I'll drive for Uber. I'll work third shift at Lowe's, but I really want to go at this. And so we were running towards the end of our runway, actually, from our personal funds and savings. It would probably we'd probably run out in June. And so it was really wow. it was a blessing to have Greg come in when he did. You had your personal burn chart. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so some of the investment firms that you mentioned are specifically engaged with funding people of color and underrepresented groups in tech. Yeah. I'd love to talk about why it's so important that these firms exist and what's going on there. What's the need that they're solving for? Well, I think that the first thing is, is that in a lot of cases, if you think about what people invest in, a lot of times people invest in what they understand. And so if you don't have people on the other side of the table who are writing checks, you're going to miss out on opportunities where you see specifically people of color solving a problem for other people of color. If you think about a couple of founders um, that I absolutely love, Dr. Ty and Courtney Caldwell of Shearshare down in Dallas, Texas, they're focused on the beauty space for, for barbers and beauticians and hairstylists. And in a lot of cases, they're going into meetings where the traditional VC may not understand that market at all. Uh, you got Sheena Allen from Capway, who's focused on helping the unbanked and underbanked population of the world understand and get part of our financial system. Like if you think about it, there are literally millions of people 
who can't use an Airbnb because they don't have a credit card or a debit card. Mm -hmm. They can't use an Uber. And so if you think about all the things that you do without cash on a day-to-day basis, like that's astonishing to know there's millions of people all across our country trying to do it. And she's trying to solve that. But in some cases, the VCs that she's sitting across from have no idea that like that people could even exist without a bank account. And so I think it's really important that on the other side of the table of the VC space, that you definitely have those founders, as well as the fact that there's a level of opportunity that we're creating when the people who are creating the products are also being invested by people who look like them. There's going to be a huge, huge opportunity for synergies there. And, and we're really excited about the work that, you know, Arlen specifically is doing with Backstage Capital. Uh, another one of our investors, Black Star Fund, another of our investors, OVG out of Atlanta. And so we definitely focus on making sure our cap table is incredibly diverse. You know, more than 40% people of color, more than 22% women, more than 17 percent LGBTQ. And so it's really important to me to make sure that we're creating those opportunities on the funding side as well, because I think that in some cases, some of these businesses just wouldn't be funded without that, because in some cases you've got implicit bias or in other cases, just flat out explicit bias or lack of understanding of the markets. And so I think it's incredibly important. And it sounds like as a result of coming from a different background and having a unique perspective on that market, that there are these untapped markets or potentially even like industries. But also a lot of them seem like your own company also have this other benefit in that they are trying to solve for some of those wage discrepancies between groups. And that the fact that, you know, when these companies are successful and when these investors are then successful in supporting these companies, and then the users of these products are then successful, it's kind of like everyone's being lifted up. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, are, are you familiar with like the PayPal mafia? I've heard of the PayPal mafia, but tell me more. Right. So so the gist of it is you've got, you know, PayPal story is fantastic. I read the Elon Musk book, which was great. I can't remember the woman's last name, but I know her first name was, I think, Ashley Vance. She was awesome in that book. But... I love the PayPal Mafia. I'm completely infatuated with it because I think one of the craziest things is is how that group of, of men, all men, now have touched and impacted so many of the things we do, whether it was being one of the earliest investors in Facebook or whether it's some of the things that are happening with like Netflix and LinkedIn and all these huge companies. If you go back to the PayPal Mafia, the initial group that was part of that initial founding team and see what happened after PayPal's exit, that's crazy ripple effect. So the thing that I like to say is, imagine in a different world where the PayPal mafia had just one black person on it Mm -hmm. and just one woman on it. Mm -hmm. Like literally, like imagine the impact those people would have had in subsequent markets, whether it's investing and opportunities. The, The fact is, is that that didn't happen. And so without those major exits, you're looking at the fact of how are we creating these early stage angel investors? How are we creating the next tier of fund managers? And so that's really what I'm, I'm thinking is that how do you create that? I think that right now it's really difficult to get to a point where a founding team could be that big and have that big of an impact. I haven't seen it since where you've got, I think it was like 10 people, 12 people uh, be able to go on and do something. And maybe, you know, history will tell us something soon. But I think that it's really interesting that I don't think there's going to ever be another mafia that exists like that in a company. Mm-hmm. I think the future of that mafia is a fund like what Arlen's doing at Backstage 
investing in a hundred different diverse founders and those founders all linking up and betting on each other and supporting each other and investing each other and buying from each other and then working together. And then when we start the next thing, we work together and then we pull two people from this company and one from that company, and then they build the next thing and the next thing. And so I think that that's one of the biggest opportunities we have in shaping and reshaping and redefining what the future of this country looks like from an economic standpoint, from a wealth and a gender gap standpoint is really giving, like you said, and like I said, the opportunity for these investors to also share in the upside as these things blow up when they do. Yeah, I think the Arlen Hamilton and Backstage Capital story is so fascinating and really inspiring. And I recommend anyone who isn't familiar with it to go look it up. But she set a goal of investing in 100 companies from underrepresented groups, people of color, LGBTQ, women. And I think she did it in like a year or something like that. Was it? Like, I think it was like two. I think it was like two and a half years. Two and she, a half I think years? her initial goal was like five or ten years. It was something crazy. Yeah, and then did it incredibly fast, which you know she points out is totally debunking this idea that there's no pipeline right. of these kinds of founders or ideas worth investing in from these groups. Yeah, I think it's perfect. I mean, you think about talent is you know, equally distributed opportunity necessarily isn't. And you think about, you know, the compacting impacts of the fact that a lot of these different founders don't live in the traditional tech hubs and investors aren't necessarily getting on planes to go see them. It also makes it challenging to get the funding you need to even get started to get on a VC's uh, radar. And so uh, she definitely went out, her and her team went above and beyond and, and hitting that goal. This week, I think you got to talk at the SEC. Is that right? Yeah, actually, yeah. I'm, I'm coming to you live from the Securities <laughs> and Exchange Commission. Yeah, right. Um, I, no, actually, I came up to D.C. I was really fortunate. Last year, I think last fall, we did an equity crowdfunding campaign. And so for those who may not be familiar, everyone knows of Kickstarter and Indiegogo, where you give money and you may get you know, a prototype of a product or get first edition of that product. And with equity crowdfunding, you're asking people to put in their money for a share of your company or for debt that turns into equity in your company. And so we actually did an equity crowdfunding campaign last fall. I think we had 330 people invest uh, just over $145,000 total. And because of the success of our campaign, we actually got invited uh, to come and speak at the Securities and Exchange Commission to talk about Small Business Week as it kicks off that event, but really talk about the JOBS Act the impact that it's having on investors all across the country, early stage startups and small businesses getting the capital that they need to start and survive through the funding cycles they need to. And it was really, really awesome. Like I was able to represent founders who've gone through that process. Um, I was a black founder in that space. It was really important for me to not only shine a light on what is happening as an entrepreneur, but also what I'm seeing from you know the investor community. So it, it was a blast. To really be in that opera, in that room, um, Martha Miller and, and Chairman Clayton and their entire team were really, really excited to hear from the entrepreneurs and panelists that were at the, the roundtable. And was there any message that you wanted to get across while you were there? Well, the biggest thing I wanted to leave them with is, you know, what is the goal that we have? What is it that we're actually setting out to do? If we are trying to, we corporately, if we're trying to say that we want to increase the opportunity of early stage investing for investors, but yet we have a million dollar net worth that you have to have 
to invest in early stage startups or if you make a certain amount of money as a household or as an individual, we have to also acknowledge how disproportionate that is when it comes to different races and different genders. Mm -hmm. And so what I was really wanting to encourage them to do was I'm fine with us having the income and the, the salary as components or variables in the equation, but I definitely think that we should look at a way for there to be a certification, a test to be able to be taken. Jason Calacanis, notable, world-famous angel investor, talks about that. You know, you could be a Stanford professor that makes 90K a year teaching the next, you know, startup geniuses of the world and the next VCs of the world, and you can't invest in their deals, like based on the guidelines. And so I really wanted to talk about that. I mean, someone threw out a number of say, oh, well, if we increased the net worth number from a million to 2.5 million. And I was like, well, that would absolutely decimate people of color's opportunity to get into early stage deals, like flat out. Like mm-hmm. that would be a bold statement saying we are not interested in helping democratize this process. So I definitely wanted to focus on that, but also really to shine a light on these exemptions that are being used. And, you know, I think about one of them is the general solicitation one where now you can announce that you are raising a fund you know, publicly uh, as you file certain exemptions. And Arlen took advantage of that, partly, I believe, due to the fact that they had a podcast going and part of it was going to be recording it. But the gist of it was she got crucified on social media and through the media because she hasn't closed her fund yet, which if you look at the time it takes people to raise some of these funds, it takes a long time. And so I made sure to re, you know, emphasize to the SEC in that way is that the challenge in that, that one was that I don't think anyone benefits. Like in a lot of cases now, you might as well just not say anything because if this is the reaction we're going to have with such vitriol to a person who's trying to deliver, I think that that's a big challenge for people who are going to be using it overall. So it was really great to have the ear of the folks in that room. And we're looking forward to seeing what Martha Miller and her uh, office does, the advocate for small businesses. And so we're going to continue the conversation and see where it goes. And what's next for you and, and for Bandwagon? What's on the horizon? The biggest thing for us is business development. We're all about bringing the right teams on. We're actually in the process of signing our first professional soccer team. So we're really excited about that, as well as working on a couple of international opportunities. We're finding that there's a warmer uh, opportunity there and some adoption rates as far as uh, folks being really interested in the idea of what this is going to do, not only from revenue, but also public safety, right? Like if I can help you understand who's inside a venue, you're going to be able to make your, your people much safer. It's, it's one of these things I think about even when, you know, someone gets banned from a sporting event. And it's like, okay, this person's banned from showing up. And it's like, well, how do you enforce that? Like, is the person who's making eight bucks an hour that's scanning tickets going to enforce it? Like, do you have facial recognition cameras all over the place that you're going to stop them at the gate? If that person buys on a secondary market that you're not partnered with, how do you know? And so we really think that that's part of the thing we'll be able to help with on the safety side abroad. And that's one of the things we're working on from a solution standpoint. And so we're really excited about the fact that the tech is done and we're iterating on the product as we're working with these different customers. But our biggest focus right now is business development, closing some business and, you know, taking it to the next level from there. And is that one of your focuses as CEO is on the business development side? Yeah. So I'm primarily focused on business development. We have a head of sales. It's kind of serving as like sales operations and account management as we bring customers on board. But I'm also focused on product vision. So, you know, Bandwagon has our, you know, our current product is Aura, A-U-R-A. And so we have that product, which is our B2B SaaS platform. But we do have a couple of products that are going to be B2C. As I mentioned earlier, I think the future of this is empowering fans to have control and being able to engage 
with these, you know, brands and teams and, you know, all these other event organizers, but also being able to capitalize on that experience, whether it's monetarily or just having a better game day or concert day. So we're working on a couple of things that we'll be rolling out in Q3 and Q4 this year that users and listeners will be able to actually put their hands on and be able to participate in this new world of data. And what's the best way for our listeners to find Bandwagon or yourself and stay in touch and up to date with what you're working on? Yeah, definitely. So uh, Twitter is my most famous and favorite platform. Uh, it allows me to connect with people all across the world. So I absolutely love it. So I'm one bandwagon fan, the one spelled out O-N-E bandwagon fan. And you can follow Bandwagon on Twitter. It's Bandwagon T-I-X. And you can check out what we've been building with Aura at experienceaura.io. And so we're really, really excited about how the future of live events is really going to be shaped by a lot of the work that we're doing and fans crave live events and they're really craving curated and unique experiences. And we want to help uh, these event organizers deliver on that uh, promise. Well, Harold, thanks so much for sharing your story with me. And I truly wish you the, the best of luck. It sounds like a really amazing company that you've got. I appreciate it. We're only getting better from here <laughs> and I appreciate the opportunity. So we're just getting started. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks again to Pricing Wire for sponsoring this episode of Giant Robots. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.